You guys can turn with me to the book of Malachi, chapter 3. So when I was a kid, O.J. Simpson was the man, uh, right? Remember, I, I grew up in uh, upstate New York, did my grade school time there. And so when I was in grade school, O.J. was still running for the Buffalo Bills and, you know, playground every day. We're playing football. Every kid wanted to be running back and every kid wanted to be O.J. Every kid wanted a number 32 jersey. Uh, I mean, O.J., he was... He was the man, right? And then after uh, injuries halted his career, then he went into acting. You know, so he's a great athlete. He's really handsome. Girls were all around him. Like, I mean, OJ was the man. And I realized this, this week as I was thinking about uh, this illustration about OJ in particular that uh, this is 40-something years ago and most of you weren't born. So maybe, you know, your only memory of OJ is the, is the white Bronco slowly going down the highway that you've seen on, you know, on video or you've seen you know, an ESPN documentary about OJ, uh, and so you only know, in a sense, kind of that segment. But I'm telling you, before all that happened, man, o- everybody in this nation thought OJ was awesome. Right? It was amazing. And so I remember vividly when it came on the news, and you know, I watched that white Ford Bronco going slowly down the highway. I remember hearing the story. It's like, okay, his, his ex-wife and her boyfriend were murdered, and they think O.J. did it, and he's down on the floorboard of the Bronco drama line. There is no way. I mean, the juice is, is awesome. I love it. The, there's no way that he did this. And then the trial began, and as uh, we all, I mean, probably, it's probably the most fixating trial uh, coverage that uh, the nation had seen up to that point in time. I mean, other than Watergate. I mean, people are just like, wow, locked on this thing. And as the trial went on, it became increasingly clear that, yeah, this, he's probably guilty. But then there was this moment in the trial where the prosecutors, uh, they wanted him to try on the glove that had been found at the scene, and it was all crinkled and shriveled, and they had him put on a, a sterile glove underneath it. And lo and behold, I mean, his hand didn't fit inside the glove. It's like, oh! And the jury turned, and he was acquitted. And I remember it was just a really, really, really weird moment because in the first place, I didn't want him to be guilty. But then I watched the trial and I thought he really is guilty. And then I moved to, oh my gosh, I think this guy just got away with murder, literally. And, um, you know, I don't know if, if, you know, events like that, you know, if they rattle your faith in God, right? Because it's so far distant, right? It happened in California. <laughs> but, but when it, you know, injustice gets a little closer to us. Somebody does something wrong to us or to someone that we love and care about or friends or family or whatever, then we kind of stop. We go, wait, wait, wait. God, are you seeing this? Are you, are you paying attention? Do you actually care? And if you do, can you do anything about this? And, you know, it, it forces us to, to think about the justice of God. Now, in Malachi's day, they were really, really, really struggling because it appeared that God was absent from the daily injustices. And it was uh, reshaping, in a sense, their theology about the Lord. I want you to read with me Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. It says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, and yet you say, How have we wearied him? In that you say, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or you say, Where is the God of justice? Similar questions that they asked again, chapter 3, verse 14. You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed, 
not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. You see what they're wrestling with? Is uh, the unrighteous aren't punished. Instead, it seems like they're rewarded. So God must be blessing the unrighteous. And the righteous are not being blessed. Instead, they're struggling and they're suffering. And so they're really wrestling through the justice of God and the character of God. Or, or at least so it would seem. Uh, in actuality, there's a little more going on to the story. Uh, there's quite a few number of people in Malachi's day who are using God's apparent absence as an excuse to cover their own sin. Interestingly, uh, Peter brought up the same issue in his day. Second Peter chapter 3, he said, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was, even from the beginning of creation. In other words, because we don't see God intervening quickly, dramatically, actively in every injustice in life, let's just go ahead and follow after our own lusts. Maybe God doesn't see, maybe God doesn't care, maybe God can't do anything about it. Solomon observed the same principle in Ecclesiastes 8. He said, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. And if I'm honest, sometimes I I get uh, pulled into the same trap. When when I'm tempted, the thought sometimes comes through my mind, well, no, no one will really see this. Okay, well, God will see it, but it's really not that big a sin. Okay, well, it's a sin, but he'll forgive me later. And I excuse my behavior. I'm tempted because I don't see God intervening quickly, dramatically, actively in every single injustice that I commit, let alone that's committed in the world. I'm tempted to, to not understand and believe in the very character and nature of God that he is just, and that he will set all things right. Now, in Malachi's day, there were actually two categories, in a sense, of people. There were those who were deceived. God doesn't see, or God doesn't care, or God can't do anything about it. And as a result of this deception, they were given to evil. But then there's another category that were just discouraged. They really wanted to pursue righteousness, and they believed in the Lord and wanted to worship him but because they weren't seeing him intervening in their lives, they became discouraged. And his message to both groups is the same. It's this, live today in light of that day. Right? Live today in light of that day. Right now, you're, you're so short-sighted. You're so myopic. You're just looking at the moments, these circumstances today, and not looking through those to that day. Right? The day when the Lord has promised he will intervene. He will set all things right. It's called the day of the Lord. Right, that's what we're going to talk about this morning because chapters 3 and 4, I've clumped them together in this series because they cover one big topic. It's called the day of the Lord. So I want you to read with me in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant In whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? The day of the Lord, it's repeated six times in chapters 3 and 4. 
It's an enormously significant topic, Old Testament and New Testament, but it's not a single day. It's not just 24 hours. It's, it's, a, it's a period of time, and it's a series of events in which God will set all things right. And any time that the day of the Lord is spoken about, it's spoken about as an absolute certainty. Right? God will punish iniquity, and God will reward righteousness, and we know that he will because he has in the past intervened in human history when men and women have strayed away from him. Think about the times of the days of of Noah. I'm going to read to you this description. This is from Genesis chapter 6. It says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. God was watching. God did see it. And he saw that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. God was paying attention, and so God intervened. And in that particular case, he intervened with a flood, and he removed the wickedness from from humanity, but he rewarded the righteousness of Noah. And Noah's family was built up, and they became fruitful, and they multiplied, and they began to spread out across the face of the earth. And what happened to humanity? society rebelled against God again. Remember, he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and carry my name, my reputation to all of the corners of this creation that I've made. And instead they said, no, let's come back together and let's make a name for ourselves. And what we'll do is we'll build a tower to the heavens, right? We will reach back up to God. And we're going to make this tower with bricks that we have burned thoroughly so that if God breaks his word and he sends another flood, we can escape because we don't trust him and we don't want to honor him and we don't want to make his name great. We want to make our name great. And so what did God do? (laughs) He just came in and stirred up all other languages and they couldn't talk to each other anymore. So they couldn't cooperate. Because God observed their behavior and he said, you know, if I let them keep cooperating with one another... There will be no end to their evil. So he scattered them through languages. And then he reached down and he picked one man who didn't even have a family yet. And he said, you know what? Abraham, through you, I'm going to start over and I'm going to rescue all of humanity. Through you, all of the nations of the earth, all of the tribes and the tongues and the peoples and the languages will be blessed through you. You will be the source of blessing. And that man became a family, and that family became a nation, and that nation found itself in slavery in Egypt under injustices that were, uh, were horrible, and they cried out to the Lord, and what did he do? He intervened. Right? He intervened. And throughout their history, God would continually remind them, I intervened on your behalf, and I will intervene again. And that future intervention is called the day of the Lord. Not a 24-hour period, but a period of time in which there's a series of events in which God will set all things right. He will punish sin, and he will reward righteousness. Now, we know more uh, about this, having the perspective of the New Testament, than they knew at that point in time. We have more information, more data. And what we discover is there is actually not even one day of the Lord, but there are Two, there's a first coming and there's a second coming. There's a first period of events and then there's a second period of events. And what Malachi is talking about here is that, that first coming. So I want you to read with me again. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, first part of the verse. It says, Behold, I'm, come, I'm going to send my messenger 
Now, do you recall what the name Malachi means? Remember, you're going to write it in your margin. It means my messenger, right? So he says, I've sent a messenger, and I'm going to send another Malachi, and he's going to prepare the way for another Malachi, right? I've got my messengers, and my messengers will keep reminding you that I'm going to intervene in human history, and I'm going to set all things right. And he will prepare the way before me to do what? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says, And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. He's going to prepare the way before the Lord. For the Lord to come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, okay, there's your third messenger, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages. The widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. So the messenger is going to prepare the way for the Lord, who is another messenger who will do what? He will judge unrighteousness and reward righteousness. That's his role. That's his job. So the question is this. um, Who exactly... Uh, is he talking about here? Who is this first messenger? Well, if you look in chapter 4, verse 5, he brings a little more clarification. He says, Behold, the one whom I'm going to send you is Elijah the prophet. Before the great and terrible day of the Lord, he will restore the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with the curse. That is, Elijah the prophet's going to come, and he's going to, put people back in right relationship with me so that I can bless and not curse. Right? And that messenger was first prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40. Right? Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up. Let every mountain and hill be made low so that all flesh can see the glory of the Lord. Right? The messenger comes to prepare for the glory of the Lord to come. That messenger, he says, is going to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So who exactly is he talking about? Well, what we're going to do here for a moment is we're going to just flip back and forth through the Gospels. So I want you to turn to John chapter 1. Okay, we're going to start in John chapter 1. And let's read in verse 19. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him, sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem, to ask him, who are you? And he confessed, and he did not deny, but he confessed, I'm not the Messiah. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet that Moses promised? He said, no. Then they said to him, well, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. I'm the one who's fulfilling the words of Isaiah the prophet. He said, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not John the Baptist, but I'm preparing the way of the Lord. Okay. Now, I want you to turn with me 
to Matthew chapter 11 and verse 14. Actually, let's start in verse 7. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. It was John the Baptist. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it was written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Quoting Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What's going on? The leaders come to John the Baptist and say, are you John the Baptist? Or are, you, are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm not Elijah. Are you the prophet? No, I'm not the prophet. I'm the one prophesied in, in the book of Isaiah. This similar group of people come to Jesus and they say, who is this John the Baptist? And he says, well, he's the one who fulfilled the prophecy in Malachi, which was clarified at the very end of Malachi's letter, chapter 4. He, he actually, he is Elijah, if you're willing to accept him. So think about where we are in the book of Matthew. Jesus has announced the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm the king. I am the anointed one. I am the Messiah. He validates it with his teaching, Sermon on the Mount. He validates it with his miracles. And then in chapter 11, he says, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. You learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. You will find rest for your souls. I am your king. I'm the one who will relieve you. He offers himself as king. And what happens? They reject him. They reject him. They reject John the Baptist too, don't they? Turn to Mark chapter 9, verse 13. Start verse 11, actually. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Because the scribes have read Malachi. And he said to them, Elijah does come first and he restores all things. And yet how is it written that the Son of Man will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. They rejected John the Baptist. The leadership rejected him and then Herod arrested him and Herod had his head removed. And the leadership of Israel rejected Jesus' offer to come to him and instead they said he's cast out demons by the ruler of Beelzebul. He is demonically possessed. They rejected Jesus the Messiah. And so Jesus would stand over Jerusalem right toward the end of his life and he would say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't have me. Jesus is saying, John could have fulfilled the role of Elijah, which was what? To set the people right with me so they'd be ready to receive me as Messiah. But the people rejected me. And so Elijah will have to come back. 
Right? Elijah will have to come back. So John came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And God knows all things. Doesn't he? he even knows the things that could have happened, that could have been. We don't. And I don't understand how God sorts all those things out. But he knew, in fact, even when Jesus was making an offer of himself as king, that the nation would reject him. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. It says, Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of our Lord. Right? He knew exactly where he wanted to read. So he, he opened up the scroll and he read from this place and then he closed the scroll. And it says he handed it back to the attendant and he sat down and the eyes of the whole synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The messenger has come to prepare the way for me. And I'm the messenger bringing you the offer of the kingdom. But what's fascinating about where Jesus read from and where Jesus stopped is that he ended his reading in the middle of a sentence. Jesus read from Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, but all of those verse uh, numerals were put on much later, right? In the Middle Ages. They didn't exist then. Jesus is just reading a scroll and he stops in the middle of one of the prophet's sentences. It actually reads like this. To set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of our Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God. That's how the sentence ends. But Jesus didn't read that part. Instead, he said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Because at that first coming, Jesus wasn't going to punish all unrighteousness that existed in political systems. Instead, he was going to deal with the more fundamental issue of unrighteousness, and that is the unrighteousness in our hearts. And so they couldn't see it, but he was going to have to come twice. And it's still a valid offer of himself as king, even though he knew that they would reject him. And they had to reject him so that he could be crucified for a payment of our sins, to deal with this greater personal injustice, which is the injustice inside of our hearts. When we don't see God judging all sin quickly, what happens? Our hearts can grow cold and we can pursue further injustice. We're sinners in need of a Savior to die for our sins. And so Jesus said, I'm going to come the first time and I'm going to deal with this. I'm not coming for judgment. He said, I'm coming so that you may have life and that you may have it abundantly. But I will come again. Right? Just as there was a first coming, there will also be a second coming. But the question for us as believers is, why the delay? Right? For the righteous, it's always been frustrating that God doesn't execute righteousness more quickly, right? At least for, for others, not for us, but, but for others. So why the delay? I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8. Remember chapter 3 begins like this. Know this, first of all, that in the latter days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Verse 8, it says, but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. 
The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So why has God delayed in sending his son again? Because he wants to make space, right? And that's why he has left us, the church, in this place, so that during this time of God holding back and holding back and holding back, his inevitable justice against sin, we can invite more and more and more people to believe in him. But know this, he will come again. Right? There will be a second uh, intervention, so to speak, a second coming in which the Son of God will set all things right. And what I'm going to do for you, I'm just going to take a couple of minutes and I want to map out how I think it's going to happen. Right? This is what I can promise you. We're all going to be a bit surprised. This is how I think is the best way to put together the data of Scripture for the second coming and how things are going to transpire, right? I'm not saying that this is the absolute, 100% certain way. I just think it's the best way in my mind. But I have very, very godly friends who read the same Bible. They come up with different conclusions. That's fine. I will say this. All of them agree on the one thing. Jesus will return. Right? Jesus will return and he will set all things right. This is how I think it's going to go down. I think that the next event that will be experienced on earth in terms of God's intervention is the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. If you're taking notes, you want to scribble that down. It says that the Lord will descend from heaven and there will be a shout. And we who are alive and remain, we will be caught up. That's the Greek word for rapture. Literally, it's, that's a transliteration of the word rapture. We'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. I think it's a distinct event from the second coming or the return of Jesus there in the middle. Because at the return of Jesus, he comes to the earth. In the rapture, we're told we meet him in the air. Right? We're caught up. And I think that believers are removed from the earth. The reason I think that they're removed is not just this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4. But the next series of events are called the Great Tribulation. Uh, it's also known as Daniel's 70th week. Right? 69 of those weeks have transpired. From a covenant or a, a promise that was given for Israel to return and rebuild until the triumphal entry, there were 69 periods of seven years, literally, exactly. But that 70th week was delayed, that final period of seven years. And Daniel says that final period of seven years has a purpose, and that is to bring the Jewish people to repentance. They have rejected, Daniel says, they're going to reject Messiah. But during the tribulation period, they're going to be brought to a point of repentance and they'll believe in Jesus as Messiah. The church has already believed. So, 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, we will be delivered out of the wrath to come. We don't have to go through that period, I believe, and I hope I'm right. Because we've already believed in Jesus. So I think that the church will be removed. And then the beginning of that seven-year period is actually not marked by the rapture. It's marked by the Antichrist making a covenant with Israel. Right, he makes a covenant with the Jews to guard them, protect them, and to restore their worship in Jerusalem, which is going to be amazing. Like worldwide, remember, Antichrist doesn't mean just against Messiah. It also means instead of. Right? He's a false Messiah, but he's going to be an amazing man. Somehow he's going to bring peace to the Middle East. So much peace that uh, Arabs and Jews, Muslims and Jews are going to be able to actually worship again together on the Temple Mount. Temple sacrifice will be restored for Israel. 
peace in the Middle East, right? The, the center of so much conflict constantly. And the world will turn to him and think he's the one. Right? He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He's the one who will bring peace. And he makes this covenant with Israel. They follow him, believing he is finally their Messiah. But then in the middle of that seven-year period, he breaks a covenant with them. And he begins to persecute them harshly. And they realize that they were deceived. And Zechariah says they, look on, they will look on him whom they pierce, that is Jesus, and they'll mourn for him. And they'll realize we rejected our own Messiah. And they will believe. And there will be a mass revival amongst the Jews as they turn back to Jesus as Messiah. And then the tribulation will get worse. And the suffering will get worse. And it will get worse. And then Jesus will return. That's the second coming. It's kind of the, the pinnacle of the day of the Lord. Jesus will come and, and all of the armies of the earth will be arrayed against him and there will be an anticlimactic battle when he says, enough. He comes in as a warrior on his white horse and his robe is dipped in blood and he defeats all of his enemies. Even Satan. And he binds Satan for a thousand years. We call it the millennial kingdom because in Revelation chapter 20 it says it'll last for a thousand years. I also call it the Davidic kingdom because it's the promise made to David, right? That Messiah will come and he'll establish his kingdom from Jerusalem and it will bring blessings to all of the earth. And in this Davidic kingdom or this millennial kingdom, injustice will be judged immediately. And righteousness will be rewarded immediately. It will be a perfect reign. But there will still be some who don't want to follow Messiah, And the rebellion in their hearts will build and build at the end of that thousand year period. We're told again at the end of Revelation that God will allow Satan to be released for a brief period of time. He'll gather those armies together again to fight against God. And they will once and for all be eliminated. And then the new heavens and new earth will come in. Right? Heaven is God restoring all things. Right? In a sense, heaven will come down to earth. And God will dwell among us. And we will be his people. And he will be our God. And there will be a moment when all unrighteousness is judged. It's called the great white throne judgment. And it's only for people who've said no to God, that they don't want God. C.S. Lewis once wrote, he said, in the end there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, your will be done. God will not coerce anyone to spend eternity with him. But instead what he does is he invites everyone to spend eternity with him. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you've never said yes to God, if your whole life God has just been saying saying to you, your will be done, your will be done, your will be done. But really, I'd love for you to find life in my son. Maybe this morning would be that moment where you say to God, God, your will be done. I believe in your son, Jesus. I believe that he came that first time to deal with my sin. Thank you. I believe in him. The moment that you believe in Jesus, that debt of sin is removed forever, and you have the hope of life forever, which is not life floating on clouds, right? (laughs) Playing a little harp. It's meaningful labor. It's joyful relationships. It's bodies that don't deteriorate because God will make heavens and earth new as they were intended to be, and you will live in harmonious relationships with others and with God, and with all of creation forever. Because that was God's original intention. And he will, in fact, set all things right. So, how do we apply this? 
Um, remember, there were two kinds of people in Malachi's day. Um, all of them believed that Yahweh existed. They believed in God. But some were deceived because they didn't see God immediately intervening to punish sin and reward righteousness. And maybe this morning, you, you believe in God and you're a follower of Jesus, but because you don't see sin judged immediately, there are temptations that are taking root in your life. And this morning, your application is simply confess. Right? Maybe the Spirit of God is just reaching in your life, and what's happened is you're, you're, you're very myopic, right? You're short-sighted, and you're looking at circumstances as they are just today and forgetting. It, it matters how you live. Right? Believers, it matters how, how you live. God, God hates all sin in our lives, and he loves righteousness. And it may be that you need the Spirit of God to transform these different areas where you're giving in to temptation. Or maybe you're just discouraged, right? You just don't see God immediately acting, and you need to be reminded and refreshed. No, no, look through the present circumstances. God will set all things right. right? God has a plan. I think I know how it's going to go. I don't know if I got all the details right. I know we'll all be surprised, but here's the fact. God has a plan. And God will set all things right, and God will reward righteousness, and he will punish iniquity. And it's going to happen quick, right? It's, it's imminent. There's nothing else that has to transpire in the history of the world, I think, eschatologically, before the rapture of the church. It could happen this afternoon. There are no more events that have to happen. It could happen this afternoon. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we ready? Are we living prepared Will God be pleased if he stepped in right this very moment? Would he be pleased with our thoughts? Would he be pleased with our words? Would he be pleased with our relationships? And if not, now is the moment for us to set those things right. Now I want to close with an illustration that's, again, probably going to distract all of us uh, a little bit. But if I, if I could, could I have the uh, servers go back and get ready for communion. And then I'm going to give you this illustration. And I'm going to try to not drive you crazy with this illustration this is a stereogram. You remember these things? They were real popular a few years ago. Lots of lines and dots and whatever. And if you blur your eyes just right or whatever, it becomes a 3D image. Okay, can anybody see it yet? Have you found it? Literally no one at the 915 could, could see it. Um, and I won't keep it up there forever lest you lose your mind. But here's the trick if you... If you uh, if you find a stereogram today on, uh, on the internet, you're like, I've got to figure this out. I've got to solve it. This is actually a shark and two fish. Trust me. It really is there. Now, here's how you, here's how you, uh, how you unpack it. You, you put your nose right on the screen. But I know it won't work for you right now. So um, you're all stuck. But go home, pull one up on the computer, put your, your nose right on the screen, and then you slowly move back. Right? And as you're moving back, your brain will be able to unpack that 3D image for you, right? Which I think is just a really great illustration of our problem, our challenge in life, right? Here, here we are. We're, we're looking at circumstances like this. And what do we need to do? We need to pull back. And what happens is your eyes begin to look through all of the lines. And the image emerges, and that's what we need to do with life. We need to have this long look. God has intervened in the past and he has set things right. And he will again. And we may not see it in this very moment, but it will happen. 
And we need to believe that and trust that. And the reason that we know it's true is because he did it in the past most dramatically with his son Jesus. That's why we're, we're ending with communion service. It reminds us that the first time Jesus came, he intervened in our greatest need, which was the personal unrighteousness in our own hearts. And he dealt with that completely. So if I could ask the servers to service, and as they're doing so, let's just take a few moments before the Lord and say, God, thank you. I trust that you'll intervene again, but I trust first and foremost that you have intervened in Jesus. Thank you for giving us his body broken for us and his blood poured out for us. And let's just take a few moments to give God thanks for that. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this bread is my body that's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup in the same way and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's take the cup together. Father, thank you for uh, breaking into human history and breaking into our history. Thank you for uh, dealing with the, the unrighteousness within us and removing that debt so that we could have life. Father, we, we thank you and we praise you for that and we recognize the incredible cost the life of your very son and the separation and the rupture in that relationship. We don't take that lightly. We're grateful. And we pray that our worship as a result would be worthy of the sacrifice that you made to set us right with you. Father, we thank you that you sent your son once and you'll send him again. We thank you that you do, in fact, hate sin and unrighteousness and none of it dwells with you and that you've promised us a world in which heaven dwells in which that is removed it's removed not only from the circumstances around us but it's removed from our own hearts and the lusts of our own hearts are crushed and we can walk before you in truth and righteousness and I pray Father that as we wait for that day we would grow in our and our hunger for our friends and our family to know that as well. I pray, Father, you'd stir up our hearts in this moment as we wait. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You guys have a great week.